We are in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. That's my text today. The theme of today's message really is, I mean, it's baptism. One word, baptism. And why not? Because we get to baptize several people once the service is over. So it's a good theme to have on such a day as this, I think. I'd like to read the text for a moment. Colossians 2, 11 to 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, and that's an important phrase, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So that's our text. And you look at that, and maybe some of you have already made an observation, and you say, you just said this was about baptism. He spent half the time, if not more, talking about circumcision. So which is it? Well, that would be a correct observation. And it seems, at least in this passage, that circumcision and baptism seem to be closely linked together. And so for us to, I think, fully grasp and, and take like a sponge these two verses and squeeze them for all they're worth, we need to have a proper understanding of this thing called circumcision. Because while it may not be that big of a deal today, back here, it was a big deal. And so my introductory remarks um, will be discussing this topic of circumcision, and then we will come back and unpack the text. So circumcision, what do we want to know about that? Every Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, Leviticus 12, 2-3. It, it was a sign that he belonged to the covenant nation of God, Genesis 17, 10-14. So Every Jewish boy, eighth day after they're born, they're circumcised. It's a sign, it's a marker that they are a part of the covenant nation of God. And there were really two schools of thought when it came to circumcision. And the first view is that it was enough. That's the first view. It's enough. That circumcision, you, you, you do this, and you're good to go. You're circumcised, and it would, it would be to them... Individual salvation, in a sense. Well, Paul corrects this view. Romans chapter 9, verse 6, this is what he writes. For all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Excuse me. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. And those are fighting words, as Paul pinned those. Here he's coming in, and he's saying... Just because you're ethnically Jewish doesn't actually mean that you're Jewish. Now, of course, they are Jewish in the sense of their heritage, but he was speaking of not the physical reality, but the spiritual reality. That just because Abraham is your great-great-great-grandfather doesn't actually truly mean that he's your grandfather. That circumcision... The sign of the covenant that you belong to the, the people, excuse me, the, the nation of God, it was no guarantee whatsoever for individual salvation. And so Paul, he corrects this way of thinking all throughout the book of Romans. 
All throughout the book of Romans. Now, he, he didn't hate on circumcision. If you follow this, his missionary trips throughout the book of Acts, you may remember he actually takes his young protege, the young guy he's mentoring and discipling, Timothy, and actually has him circumcised so that it won't be like a stumbling block when they're out witnessing to Jews. So, so he's not like a, a circumcision hater. In fact, in Romans 2.25, he says, For circumcision... Indeed, is a value. It's a value. It's not disregarding it. It's a value. If you obey the law. That's the problem, right? If you obey the law, it's a value. But if you've heard any gospel message presented, you know that we, we all fall short. We, we break the law. We're not good people. Like, we we are in rebellion. We're born radically depraved in rebellion to the king of the universe. We we are. And, And he goes on to say, but if you break the law, your circumcision, this thing that you're basing your hope in, becomes uncircumcision. Right? He goes on to say in Romans 2.28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Just imagine The people hearing this, right? Jewish guys who've been circumcised. Paul says this. It's not outward and physical. And I'm sure some of them are like, oh, pretty sure it is. Like, I would know. Like, I just imagine them thinking this. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. I'm not speaking, like, in the the physical sense. He's speaking of spiritual realities that go much more beyond just checking this box. So many of them, this view is, you do this, you're good to go. You do this, you're good to go. And that's not a whole lot different from a lot of people today. Now, maybe we wouldn't call it circumcision, but we'd say, oh, you've been baptized? Oh, you've been sprinkled? You're good to go. You're a good person? You're good to go. You got that Awana badge? Yeah, I see that. Mm, You're good to go. Your parents are Baptists? No, Southern Baptists. Even better. You're good to go. Right? You're Methodist? No, we're United Methodists. You're Presbyterian? No, we're Pentecostal holiness. You're good to go. Right? So that's the first view. It's enough. And that's the view that many people have today. Like, it's enough. Like, like I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. After all, we're in the South. So I done did that. I prayed that prayer. I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I rededicated my life every time the altar was open. It's enough. So here's this first view, right? Those are all of our views. People say, oh, that's enough. So this was their deal, right? In that time and day, it's circumcision. Boom, it's enough. You're good to go. And Paul vehemently corrects this and says, no, it's it's not enough. So the second view that, that Paul is showcasing for us is he recognizes that circumcision rather is not enough, but rather it is this outward demonstration That man is born sinful, that man is born radically depraved and God-hating, and just as circumcision is removing a part of the man's body and pulling it away, that, that in circumcision it is the showing for us the need for us to be cleansed, as Ezekiel would say, for our heart of stone to be replaced with a heart of flesh. There are spiritual realities that Paul is speaking of. And it's nothing new. 
You go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, 16. Moses, he's not happy, and he, he tells the people, you guys have been you're stiff-necked people, you're in rebellion to God. May your hearts be circumcised before him. So this isn't anything, it's not a new concept. Moses spoke of circumcision in regards to the spiritual reality a long time before Paul ever showed up. But to drive this point home, he tells the story about Father Abraham. Yes, the, the one who had many sons. In Romans 4.11, he says this. He, speaking of Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. That's important. Don't miss that. While he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. You see that? You missed that? Don't miss it. He says, Abraham received the sign of the seal of circumcision. Okay, this is back Genesis 15, 6. He receives the sign of the seal of circumcision by faith. And then later on, he's circumcised. You're like, okay. He receives the sign, the seal, by faith, and then he's circum... Wait, why, why would he be circumcised late, later on if he had already received the sign and seal of circumcision by faith? And why later on would he then outwardly, physically, be circumcised? Did I miss something? You didn't miss anything. That's the point that Paul is, is making. That to show... That Abraham's circumcision was an outward, an outward sign of a heart already made righteous by faith. That's, that's the point that Paul wants his audience to see. These people are, it's enough that you're like, you done this, you're good to go, right? You prayed the prayer, you're good to go. Circumcision, it's enough. And he's like, no, no. Abraham received the sign of the seal of circumcision by faith. Later on, he was actually circumcised. His circumcision is this outward sign of a heart already made righteous by faith. And then you hear that, and it's like, that sounds really similar to this thing, this thing that we do. What is it called? Uh, starts with a B, ends with an aptism. Right? This outward public declaration of a miracle that's taken place in our lives. So that sounds really, really similar to that. Well, it should. It should, especially here. And we seemingly see baptism, at least at this point in Colossians 2, 11 to 12, to seemingly, I think, I think it's really possible Paul's making the argument that baptism has now replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant People, not nation, but people of God. So, why the 10-minute introduction on circumcision if we're talking about baptism? Hopefully it'll make more sense in a second. So Paul's writing this letter to the Colossians. Back to Colossians 2. And they have false teachers who have inf uh, infiltrated the church. And the false teachers are saying, you guys need to... Observe these days. You need to eat these foods. You need to not eat these foods. You need to worship angels. I don't know what's up with that, where they got that from. You, you need to also be circumcised. 
So they're, they're advocating, they do all these external things, like do this, do this, do this, do this. And some of you, you're like, yep, that was me. That was growing up for me. I grew up in this more legalistic, like way over here, this legalistic setting where it was like, you got to do this, 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 you can't do that, you can't do that. And you're like, yeah, the Church of Colossae, I, I get that. Yeah, that's what it's like, man. No wonder Paul's writing this letter to correct them. But you know what's interesting? You also can have the exact polar opposite. The We don't want to be legalist, so we come all the way over here, right? And it's just anything goes, right? Well, believe whatever you want, as long as it makes you feel good. Whatever you want. I remember talking to a guy. He said, Joe, I'm thinking about going to this church. I said, well, tell me a little bit about it. He's like, tell me a little bit about it. Sounding good. So I said, well, what are their statement of beliefs? He said, oh, they don't have any statement of beliefs. You guys heard the story before. I said, why don't they have any statement of beliefs? He said, well, they don't want to be divisive. Don't go to that church. That's what I told him. Don't go. Don't go. Right? I don't want to be divisive. I don't want to offend everybody. Read the Bible. It's very offensive. Okay? Especially when Jesus is speaking to these ethnically Jewish people all the time. You read John 8, and he tells them that they're slaves of sin. He says, Abraham's our father. No, the devil is. Wow. So you can easily take the, the opposite extreme. The, the just, eh, whatever. We do it all the time. And in fact, I'd say, if, any, if anything, this is probably the proclivity, right? Some of you here the very first time today, you know nothing about Lynchburg City Church. I could be a heretic for all you know. You, now some of you, you've done your due diligence. Maybe you've looked at the website. You've read the statement of beliefs. You're like, man, that seems pretty solid. That seems pretty legit. But I imagine that's not what you normally do, right? You should. You should. Acts 17, Paul goes, he visits the church in Berea. Luke, in writing and commenting on this story, he says, the Bereans, they were more noble than all the others because they examined daily the word of God to see what Paul was saying, to see whether it checked out or not. Don't assume that this is like a Christian church or anything. Because you're, well, I've got a good relationship with my pastor, my youth pastor, my Bible teacher, whatever. Be like the Bereans. You can easily take the, the, the polar opposite. But the polar opposite's not the issue today. It's just one application of an illustration. The issue here are these legalists. You gotta do this, you gotta do this, you gotta do this. And so we tie it back to circumcision. They're telling people, you gotta be circumcised. That's what, that's what you gotta do. And so Paul comes in here, Colossians 2 verse 11, he says, in him also you were circumcised. That's interesting. I picture it like this. Paul comes up, what's going on? Those people over there, Paul, they're not circumcised. Hang on a second. Hey, guys. So, we got a problem here? You're saying we're not circumcised. We need to be circumcised. Okay. Do you love Jesus? Oh, we love Jesus. Is Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life? He is. Is He your greatest treasure? Is He your deepest delight? He is. We love Him. He's changed us. Have you received the Holy Spirit when you believe? We have. Okay, hang on. You're saying they need to be circumcised? Yeah? Okay, here's the thing. They've already been circumcised. Wait, what? Yeah, they've already been circumcised. Back to Colossians 2.11. 
In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. How do you do that? I don't want to sign up for that, right? But once again, Paul's, Paul's, Paul's not speaking. Paul's not speaking of the, of the physical realities, of the, the spiritual realities of, of the heart. That's what he's speaking about. He's saying, those people over there that you're insisting that they check this box, that they be circumcised, they've already been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Like, like how, how does that happen? How do you do that? You don't. You can't do that. That's, that's new birth. That's the miracle that takes place in the life of the elect, in the life of the redeemed, in the life of the people of God, in the life of the church, where one day, you know, you've sat through so many services, and it's like, you're looking at your phone, you're like, when will he be done? This is boring, this is lame, whatever, can't wait till we have dinner. And then, you know, the next day, maybe weeks or years later, you're, you're, you're thinking about the cross. You're thinking about what Jesus did for you. And this haze begins to go away. And when you think and contemplate about these spiritual realities, it begins to be breathtakingly beautiful. Awe-inspiring. And so he tells them, those people, they've already been circumcised. They've already been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. How do you do that? By putting off the body of the flesh, right? This, this body of the flesh is stripped away. And so Paul views this physical act of circumcision, the removing a part of a man's body in a spiritual sense in which that body of the flesh is stripped away from us through the conquering power of Christ. It's gone. How? Jesus. He did it. That's, that's how the circumcision without hands works. God does that. We don't. Some of you, you maybe have never experienced that. Some of you maybe never experienced that. It's just same old, same old. Come in, warm a pew, get out. The rest of the week, it's my time. I got better things to do. And, and, and it's just going through the motions, right? Because whatever your background is, you say, no, I, I know where I'm going when I die. I'm going to heaven. I, I, whatever that is, right? For them, it was circumcision. For others of us, it's, well, whatever it is, right? I, I did that. It was enough. How? By putting off the body of the flesh. How? By the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision of Christ is through the conquering power over sin that takes place when someone comes to know Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior of their life. When a miracle happens. They need to be circumcised. They're already circumcised. So he introduces this new spiritual reality, this picture given to the people of God, that this picture, this illustration, how they've already been circumcised, how Christ has, has cut us free from the old body that's dominated by only sinning. You know, it sounds kind of like 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. How does that happen? When the circumcision without hands comes? They need to be circumcised. They're already circumcised. A miracle's already taken place in their lives. And then he segues this. 
This is where there's, you're like, why do we spend so much time talking about circumcision? Because without missing a beat, he segues to verse 12 and he says, having been buried with him in baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised with him through faith. Very important words there. In the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is a picture Baptism is a a picture of the believer's union with Christ. Baptism is this outward demonstration of a life already changed. You're going to see people very shortly be baptized, okay? You're going to see them be baptized. And you're going to see them go under the water and come up. Under the water, come up. You're going to see that picture one by one. And it's a picture of that, of this union that we have with the Lord. Just as he was buried in the ground, and then he raised, three days later, conquering sin and death out of the grave. That's what baptism is. Baptism is a picture, is a dramatization of the gospel. I mean, we've never thought of it like that. We're going to have a couple people baptized. It's not mainly about them today. Maybe you came here to support your friend or somebody. You're like, oh, it's, it's their day. It's not their day. Baptism is not primarily about them. It's primar- primarily about what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it shows our union and our identification with him of a miracle that's already taken place in our lives. And so, this is, I think... This new picture, this, this new dramatization, this new illustration, this new spiritual reality, this new marker for the covenant people of God. Not covenant nation, covenant people, right? People from every tribe, every nation, every linguistic group throughout the world. It's a sign. It's a picture. That is what water baptism shows. That's the picture that it paints. And so at this point, there seems to be in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, the shift between circumcision and baptism, where I think one has replaced the other as the sign of the covenant people, not nation of God. And this is where it's really important that we understand this, because at this point, there's a segue. Because you come from a Catholic background or a different mainstream Protestant background, there's different views on this. On baptism, what it does, what it is, what it represents. You take Catholics, for example. Some of the, some of you guys have a Catholic background, I know that. Catholics, one of the reasons it's so vitally important to baptize infants because in Catholic theology, If an infant dies and they're not baptized, they cannot go to heaven. So in Catholic theology, baptism is ex opero operato. And I'm probably ruining the Latin. But it's ex opero operato. It literally means in Catholic theology that the sacrament itself works. Or the sacrament itself is enough. Is enough. Sounds a lot like this issue with circumcision, right? You guys need to be circumcised. And so that, in Catholic theology, that's it. Catholic theology doesn't matter, right? If there's faith involved, 
baptize your infant, it opens like a a tube or a tunnel of God's grace. God's grace can then flow through the tunnel, and boom, it's enough. You're good to go. Next, please. Right? That's that's, that's what Catholics believe. That's why it's so vitally important to, to baptize individuals. That the sacrament itself is enough. It works. It opens up the pipeline to receive God's grace. It's all on the external. You do this thing, you're good to go. A lot of other Protestant denominations um, have, have different views on this. But the key part is this phrase right here in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. You see that word? In, in which you were also raised with him through what? Okay, three of you guys can see that. Through what? Yeah, you see it. Okay. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. John Piper, he was doing his PhD years ago over in Munich, Germany. Can't imagine doing PhD program, less of all in another country where that's not your primary language. And he's in a, a country in Munich, in Germany, where it's dominated by infant baptizers. And this professor calls on him, and in his best German, he says, give a defense to your position. Because he, he knows that Piper doesn't believe in infant baptism. And so, in his best German, he, he looks at his professor and he says, Colossians 2.12. Colossians 2.12. Colossians 2.12. That's, that's, what said. That's, all, that's all I can say. Through faith. Through faith. Like, that's... Has no power apart from faith. That's, that's the meaning of how it works. Just as Abraham received the sign of the seal of circumcision by faith and then later on was circumcised. So that's how baptism works. There, there's no faith. Then you're just getting wet. You can argue with me. I, I'm just reading the Bible verse. See it, see it for yourself. No faith, no baptism. In fact, you got a much bigger problem than that. No faith, no resurrection. If baptism serves to show a demonstration of our union with Christ, of the miracle that's taken place in our life, if there's no faith, you've got a bigger problem than just getting wet and simply calling it baptism. You have no resurrected new life in Jesus apart from faith alone in Him, in what He's done for you. You say, what's enough? The Gospel. That's enough. His once and for all atoning death on the cross for us. That's what's enough. You say, well, how do other denominations get this idea? It's, it's not bad logic. Um, the irony that, I, that I'm here talking about this topic in the United Methodist Church in which, you know, you say, why do they go to the lake? I, I only have enough water to get a hand or a foot in there. Like, I don't have enough water. Okay? Um, that's one reason we go to the lake. You say, how do Presbyterians... Um, and, and, and here's the thing. You come from a United Methodist background. You come from Presbyterian. Whatever your background is. Like, there are obviously people in those denominations who love the Lord. And I don't want to downplay that at all or come off disrespectful. That's not my intent. But my intent is for you to see biblically why is it that these people do what they do and why is it that these people do what they do. I want you to be educated, okay? I don't want you just to come and hear some funny story that you forget like five minutes later. I want you to understand and know theology in the Bible. 
So the thinking is this, okay? It makes perfect, perfectly logical sense in my mind. So the thinking is, if circumcision was the sign of the covenant given to baby boys, okay? And if baptism has, maybe according to Colossians 2.12, now replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant people of God, then why not apply it not just to baby boys, but also baby girls? That's the logic. It's not a bad logical argument. But that's, that's, that's the core of it. So what do you say? I say Colossians 2.12. That apart from faith, you're just getting wet. Uh, apart from faith, you're just getting wet. And only that, but apart from faith... There is no resurrected life, and the symbolism of baptism falls apart. And I, and I know if, if you grew up in the church, I don't know, maybe baptism comes off as just kind of boring to you. Like, okay, they're doing baptisms. I'm supposed to be excited, but I'm not really. Like, I get that. I remember feeling that way. Just, just being real. I'm sure some of you guys feel like that. It's not that exciting. It's kind of lame. It's kind of boring. It's just a little Christian ritual after all. But it's not a little Christian ritual. See, baptism, it's mainly about Jesus Christ. Baptism is mainly about his life. Baptism is mainly about his death, his burial, his resurrection, all dramatized in the person going under the water, coming out of the water. So when you think about baptism, don't think small thoughts about baptism. When you think about what's being signified, this union with Christ, being buried with him in baptism, don't think small thoughts, guys. See, what, what makes baptism important? Jesus! Jesus makes baptism important. Jesus makes baptism amazing. Jesus makes baptism wondrous. Without faith in Jesus, baptism has no meaning. Without faith in Jesus, all you're doing when you go out and get baptized is getting wet. Jesus made baptism what it is when he rescued us from the wrath of God, when he hung there on that tree, when he lived a life we could not live, when he died the death we should have died, when he paid the price we could not afford to pay, Jesus made baptism what it is. So don't think, oh, it's just a little Christian ritual. It's not just a little Christian ritual. Don't think small thoughts about it. May your thoughts about baptism be rekindling the thoughts of your bloodied and murdered Savior out in front of you when you understand and when you grasp what baptism signifies. Don't think small thoughts about it. You think small thoughts about it, you've missed the point. Baptism is a dramatization of what Jesus Christ did for us. Of what your bloodied and murdered Savior did for you. Or have you not heard that it was said? But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebel in rebellion against the King, Christ died for us. 
see baptism as the glorious, amazing thing that it is. God, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. I thank you for the miracle of new birth. I thank you for what you did for us on that tree. I pray, God, for those of us who maybe have been drifting through this American Disneyland version of Christianity for just way too long, and we think, well, it's enough. Like, I know I'm, I'm going to heaven because I've done this and this and this, and it's really just all this head knowledge and not an ounce deeper than that. I pray, especially for those people in here right now who are listening online, who wherever they may be, if they're hearing my voice, that you would perhaps grant them a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. I pray right now that you would stir in people's hearts in this room to see you as who you are. Breathtakingly amazing. God, maybe we be may we be wowed by you. Don't let us think small thoughts about baptism. Don't let us think small thoughts about who you are and what you've done. You are great, as the psalmist says, and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.